you have your Bible, please turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 39 through 45 this morning. Luke has opened his Gospel account with two incredible birth announcements. The first announcement came in many ways where we would expect it to come. It comes in the midst of the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem to a priest named Zechariah who is old and to his wife Elizabeth who is barren. So this, this announcement is for them, a barren wife and an old priest, but it comes in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of the temple, in the midst of the Holy of Holies. The child they would bear, a child named John, we are told, would be the final Old Testament prophet for who would herald in the coming of the promised Messiah, preparing the people to to repent and receive the Lord to come. The second announcement, however, was very different. It was in a different context where the first came in what was considered the most holy place in the world, the most honored of places, the second announcement came in a small Galilean village known as Nazareth, literally at the outskirts of Israel, a place that was referred to as the door to the Gentiles. Why? Because once you go through Nazareth, you're in the Gentile world now. You're outside of Israel. It was different in its recipient, where the first came to a notable priest performing his duties in the temple. The second came to a teenage virgin girl with absolutely no notoriety prior to this, who is betrothed to a young carpenter of the tribe of Judah. But most importantly, it was remarkably different in its message. Where the first child would be the herald of the king to come. The second child would be the king. Where the first child would prepare the people for the Lord. The second child would be the Lord. Where the first child would come through the natural means of a father and a mother. The second child would be born of God and of a virgin. The first The greatest prophet that would ever live. The second, the glorious Savior of whom every prophet from the beginning of creation had pointed to and longed to see. You may think it makes little sense that such a great child would be announced in the lowliest places to the lowliest of recipients. Should it? Shouldn't it have been flipped? Shouldn't Jesus' announcement been the one in the temple, in the Holy of Holies? But my friends, I want you to know that everything about Jesus' announcement reveals something about Him. Should the message not be announced to the place called the door of the Gentiles when Jesus Himself is the door to the Gentiles? How is it that Gentiles would be made right with God? The answer, Jesus. Should the message not have been announced to the lowliest of figures when Christ Himself would take upon the lowliest of states to save us from the guttermost to the uttermost? Blessed are the meek, the poor, the lowly. 
God chooses the weak to, to shame the strong. Should this not have been the way in which he came? Should the message not be announced to a betrothed virgin faithful to the Lord when that is precisely what Jesus makes his church? Pure virgin betrothed to the Lord. Betrothed and faithful to the Lord. Should he not be raised by a carpenter of the tribe of Judah when he himself will be the line of Judah who builds the house of the Lord? Do you see it? See the connections. So though it seems like a strange announcement, everything about the announcement reflects who this son will be and why he came the way he came. The Lord makes no mistakes. Every decision has a purpose. And Luke's gospel account so clearly wishes to highlight the glory of Christ in the details. Luke's message is clear. Yes, John the Baptist will be great and important in his ministry. But his greatness is only tied to his connection with the second child. What makes John great is his connection to the great one himself, Jesus. And that's what makes anybody great, is their connection to the great one, Christ. I love what... Haddon Robinson, the great preacher, said, there are no great preachers, only a great Christ. And today, while the two are nothing but the tiniest of infants inside of their mothers, John entering into the last trimester, Jesus still very much in the earliest stages of development, their two stories are now united for the first time in the meeting of their mothers. A meeting that will become nothing less than a worship meeting. Today we will look at the first part of that meeting and see the praise of Elizabeth. Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through 45. Let's behold it together. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment Fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How do you respond to the word of God? The faithfulness of the Father. The knowledge and the presence of Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. How do you respond? Perhaps the better question would be, how should you respond? How should you respond when the word of God is preached? When the faithfulness of God is put before you? When the person and presence of Christ is revealed to you? When the power of the Holy Spirit moves through you? How should you respond? And I believe that when it is all said and done this morning, through the praise of Elizabeth, we will have a very clear answer to that question. 
The main point that I wish for you to take from this message today when it is all said and done is this. The worship displayed in the interaction between Mary and Elizabeth displays that our response to the faithfulness of God, the presence and person of Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit should be complete surrender, utter joy, and unyielding praise. Complete surrender, utter joy, and unyielding praise. That should be the response of God's people. And I think we'll see that clearly in our understanding of this text when it's all said and done. But before we get into our, our points of focus, our, our points of takeaway this morning, I want us to place our eyes on the text and let's walk through it together. Let's, let's see the what that Luke has to give for us in these six verses or so. Uh, beginning here in verse 39 through 40, we're told that in the days of receiving the announcement from Gabriel and having been given the knowledge of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Mary in haste, gets up and she goes. She's leaving. She's ready to get to the hill country of Judah where Zechariah and Elizabeth lives. She wastes no time to get up and get going to go and visit her pregnant cousin. Now, we're not sure exactly of what town this is that she is going to visit or where Zechariah and Elizabeth's home is, but the overwhelming... Uh, testimony of church history is that that they lived in the town of Hebron right and so this was from Nazareth about an 80 to a 100 mile journey it would have taken anywhere from three to five days to get there with lots of walking involved every day now now this would have been a dangerous journey for anyone much less a, a young teenage girl who by all means from the text seems to have made this journey alone. We, we see of no one going with her. We know of no one traveling with her. From every way, it seems that she is alone. Now, this would have been scary. But fear seems to be in no way registered in the mind of Mary. But why should it? Why should there be any fear when you have the assurance of God's grace and promises both over you and before you. She is walking in light of the promises of God. And therefore, fear has no place there. And brothers and sisters, that's true for her and the church. When you have the promises of God before you, you need not walk in fear but walk in faith. We're told that she made haste to visit Elizabeth. And the way that Luke constructs this sentence is to make very clear that the haste in which it is being noted here is not merely physical haste. Oh, that she walked as fast as she could. She didn't stop for breaks or anything like that. that that's not primarily what Luke has in mind. The haste to which Luke has in mind here, is that of the nature of her heart. A deep desire to go, to quickly act upon the message that she has received. There, she wishes not to delay in the least bit, to go and to act in faithfulness, to, to, to go and experience the glories of what has been told to her about her cousin Elizabeth. 
Now, surely this was a long and arduous journey with a brand new baby growing in its embryonic stages inside of her. And, and from the, the, the little bit I know about my wife having children and other, we have lots of them now, it's that those early stages, especially when that baby is just starting to grow for the first time, that you're just tired. You're tired, you're exhausted, you feel fatigued, perhaps sick, and nevertheless, she's going 80 to 100 miles on foot. It was her faith that carried her forward. We're told in verse 41 that as Mary arrived and greeted the household, something remarkable happens. John, this little six-month-old babe still inside of his mother's womb, leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's greeting. Remember, back from the birth announcement of John, we are told that from the moment of his conception, John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would have the Holy Spirit within him, and we now see why. Because the Holy Spirit is what empowers this little one to hear the words of Mary, and by hearing the words of Mary, to know the presence of his Savior. And that little Holy Spirit-empowered baby jumps, leaps inside of Elizabeth and surely was one heck of a kick to the rib or a kick to the gut for that woman. He jumps inside of her. The king is here. The Lord is here. He can't speak yet, but he leaps. She feels the kick in her gut. But bye, friends, Often the best preaching is a kick in the gut. And it's contagious. Because what happens next? We see that Elizabeth herself is filled with the Spirit. And she now bursts forth into praise. And Elizabeth, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is able to fully grasp the significance of this meeting. This isn't just the visitation of a cousin. The Lord has entered her home through the womb of Mary. Notice we see very little of Mary's greeting. All we know is she said, hey guys. But the reason why this is, is Luke wants to make clear that the information that made Elizabeth's praise came from no one else but the Holy Spirit. How did she know the Lord was there? How did she know that Christ had entered her home through the womb of Mary? How did she know the nature of the baby that Mary carried within her? There was no telephone, no text message. Mary couldn't have gave her a call up from Nazareth. You would never guess what just happened. No. Why? How could she have known the answer? The Holy Spirit revealed it. Not Zechariah, who was mute. Not Mary who would just walk through the door. The Holy Spirit is the origin of her words. And thus, it's why we have them forged in Holy Scripture. Because the words she spoke were not just the words of a woman of praise, but the words of a prophetess who had been filled with the Holy Spirit to speak the exact words of God in this moment. Now look at her praise. It's full of Beatitudes, found in verses 42 through 45. Now, Beatitudes are announcements of blessedness. Blessed are, blessed is. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount begins with those eight Beatitudes, right? Blessed are. 
In verse 42, she announces blessing upon Mary and denotes the blessed nature of the child within Mary, which she describes as the fruit of her womb. Now, that's a Hebraism, a statement that they would say, which simply denoted the fact that children were a gift from the Lord. That's a gift from the Lord. The fruit is growing because it is a blessed gift from the Lord. Not the burden of your womb, the fruit of your womb. In verse 43, she notes her own blessedness. Right? That she would be visited by the mother of her Lord. That the Lord would come and enter into her home. This is a statement of utter humility. And it shows that she's blessed that this visitation would take place. In verse 44, she denotes the blessing of her baby who leaped for joy. How, how John himself inside of her was blessed by the fact that the Lord would enter and that he would be able to announce the Lord's coming with inside of his mother. And then in verse 45, she announces what I believe is a final statement of blessedness that actually points not just to Mary, but also herself as the basis of blessedness. Notice there, she says in verse 45, blessed is she who believed. Why not say blessed are you who believed? She's referring to Mary. I think because that, that general statement of she in that language is referring to both Mary and her. Blessed is she who believed that God would fulfill all that he promised. Remember what we had heard about Elizabeth when we first were introduced? She was a woman of faith. She believed in the faithfulness of God, and so did Mary. And their belief that God would fulfill all His promises is now finding its moment of blessedness here when all of His promises are coming to pass. Blessed is she who believed. What Luke intends to show through Elizabeth's praise is that God's faithfulness is most clearly revealed through the person and presence of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. How can you know God is faithful? Look to Christ and receive the Spirit. That's His faithfulness. That's the absolute guarantee that everything God has promised will come to pass. When Christ walked on the earth, it was absolute guarantee. The fullness of God's promises are finding their yes and amen. And to absolutely guarantee it that His death and ascension was not a pause or a break in the promises, God poured out His Spirit onto the church to say, my promises are still being fulfilled. My faithfulness is still sure. To experience those realities, the person and presence of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit is the greatest blessing of all. And the only proper response to what Elizabeth shows us is relentless praise. Absolute and utter praise. My friends, there is so much that this beautiful opening scene of Mary's visitation provides for us. So many nuances, so many paths of further discussion which could be laid before us this morning. And before we move into the main thrust of my message this morning, a message which I, I want to call a, a message of worship. What is true worship this morning? I, I just want to give four general observations regarding what we learn from 
this opening scene of Mary's visitation. Uh, and, and the first thing is that it inaugurates the ministry of John the Baptist. It inaugurates the ministry of John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist's role? What was he created to do? To herald in the coming of the Messiah. Now, if his job is just to herald in the coming of the Messiah and do that 30 years later at a baptism, I don't understand the reason that he needs to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit from the outset. That he would have something that is unique to him and no other person that we know of in all of history ever has this. A full regeneration indwelling of the Holy Spirit from the moment they are conceived. That would make, that, that, I don't understand it until now. Why was it that he was born uniquely conceived, regenerate with the Holy Spirit so that while he was still in the womb, he could do his task in saying, the king's here. And what this text shows us about the ministry of John the Baptist is that not only would he be faithful in fulfilling his purpose in heralding and exalting the coming king in preparing those be ready be prepared the lord is here the kingdom is at hand is also it shows us that without regeneration that is without being born again by the holy spirit you cannot recognize christ Without him having the Holy Spirit, he could not have did what he did. It was the Holy Spirit that allowed him to hear through, through the womb, the sound of Mary's voice and her voice being nothing more than the echoes of the reality. The Messiah is here. And to leap and proclaim inside his mother through the kick to a stomach that Jesus is here. The King is here. The Lord is here. We see now why the Holy Spirit is so necessary in the ministry of John the Baptist. It's so necessary for us because apart from Him, we cannot know and receive Christ. Secondly, this text reaffirms the messianic identity of Jesus. Notice what, Mar- what Elizabeth says here about to Mary. She says in verse uh, 43, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? My Lord? That's the same word, Chorios, that she uses literally down in verse 45 who says, blessed are those who believe that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's the same word there. What is she saying about the nature of this child and Mary? This is not just another child. This is not just a greater man. This is not just another earthly David. This is the Lord Himself. This child is the God-man. When she says, my Lord, that's Psalm 110 language. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Right? This is Davidic messianic lordship that is being established here. And Elizabeth's song makes clear to us that Jesus is just no mere man. He's no mere prophet, no mere good teacher. He is the Lord of glory Himself. So this text reaffirms our understanding of Jesus' identity. Thirdly, this text shapes our understanding of children in the womb. 
it very importantly shapes our understanding of children in the womb. The text makes absolutely clear from, that, from the very moment of conception, a child is a child. Not a clump of cells, not fetal tissue, not merely an extension of a mother's body. They are a baby. They are a child, an independent person from the moment of conception. Notice throughout, Elizabeth refers to John as what? Her baby. The baby in my womb leaped. She speaks of Jesus not as one who will be the Lord, but who is the Lord. She doesn't say, blessed is, or or why would the mother of the one who's going to be my Lord show up here? No, the mother of my Lord. He already is. He's not waiting to grow into his Lordship. He is the Lord. From the moment he was conceived, he was the Lord. And his identity was established. He was as much the Lord in Mary's womb as he was when he was laid in the manger. His personhood, his value, and his identity never changed, only his size and location. But he was just as much of the Lord on the inside as he was on the outside. This also notes that within the womb, John was full of the Holy Spirit, right? That's important because the Holy Spirit doesn't feel sales. The Holy Spirit doesn't feel animals. The Holy Spirit doesn't feel body parts. The Holy Spirit doesn't feel organs. The Holy Spirit only feels persons. So that's to tell you all you need to know about the personhood of that baby. The Holy Spirit doesn't feel organs or tissue. The Holy Spirit feels persons. My friends, the beginning of human life is a magnificent thing. And this is not just true for John the Baptist and Jesus. For all of us were fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord. Stitched together in our innermost parts within our mother's womb. From the moment of conception with unique personhood and unique identity established. But more importantly with the image of God printed on each and every one of us. The text also demonstrates something else very important. That not only... Does life begin at conception? But so does motherhood. So does motherhood. Mary and Elizabeth both became mothers the moment they conceived. They didn't become mothers after. They were mothers the moment a baby took residence inside them. The moment of conception. Mary is not described as a future mother, but already the mother of the Lord. And the reason why that's so important, brothers and sisters, because it makes very clear one important thing. Abortion does not erase one's motherhood. It only makes a woman the mother of a dead child. Which she gave over to be sacrificed on the altar of choice and convenience. So don't think you're escaping motherhood by getting rid of that baby. You've only just made yourself the mother of a dead one. 
Life begins at conception. So does parenthood. So men and women, the moment of life is conceived, parenthood begins. Babies are a blessing. The fruit of the womb. They are human persons from the moment of conception to the moment that they pass on from this life. Our care for the, for the pre-born should be the same that we do for those at the last moments of their life. Dignity, value, sanctity, and honor. Because they are image bearers of the living God. This text makes that so clear for us. And then finally, and this will be the thrust of our message, this text beautifully demonstrates the nature of true worship. The opening scene of Mary and Elizabeth's visitation paints us such a beautiful picture of what true worship looks like. That's the very heart of this text. That when God's faithfulness is displayed, when Jesus is revealed in His person and presence, and when the power of the Holy Spirit is at hand, our worship must follow. Worship must follow. And that's what the rest of this next chapter and a half are all about. The next chapter and a half of Luke are nothing but song after praise after song after praise after song after praise. That's all it is. Next week, Song of Mary. After that, Song of Zechariah. After that, Jesus is born. Song of the angels. After that, the praise of Anna. After that, the Song of Simeon. In other words, the glorious reality that God's faithful to fulfill His promises the glorious reality that Christ is in power and in present with us and has come to redeem us and save us. The reality that the Spirit has made known Christ to us. The only thing it should do for us is make us a worshiping people. And if you're not worshiping, it means you don't know the Son. You don't know the Holy Spirit. You don't know the Father. Because what Luke 1 and 2 makes clear is if you do, you'll worship. Your life will be a life of worship if you know it. The greatest response to the good news of Christ is worship. But what does that look like? We hear that word all the time. Right? It's Christianese. Worship. Okay. So what? What worship? What does worship look like? Is it just singing? Is it paying my tithes? Is it doing this? What does worship look like? In a day when there is so much counterfeit worship, a text like this one is so important for the church because it both describes the nature of true worship and actually provides a clear picture of what it looks like. So not only does it describe true worship, but it illustrates it for us. And that's really important. The other day, Freddie was over with me and he was helping me install heat tape on my roof. And God, I'm so thankful for the heat tape manual. Because they actually do a good job. Most manuals are garbage. They just describe to you what needs to happen. But usually you're just confused. Because I'm following the steps, but I don't think this looks right. Isn't it wonderful when an illustration guide is involved in manuals? That not only is it describing you how it should look, but it shows you actually what it looks like when it's finished. That if it looks like this, you're on the right path. 
Praise God. Because that helped us a lot. That we could say, oh, this is how it's supposed to look. Not just a description of how to install it. And my friends, that's exactly what this text does for us this morning. Not only does it describe to us at the heart of what is true worship, but it illustrates it for us through the praise of Elizabeth, through the actions of Mary, through the leaping of John himself. It it, it illustrates for us the nature of true worship. So with that being said, let's spend the rest of our time now looking at these four points of true worship, right? And the first thing that I want you to notice is notice the power behind true worship. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we have said a lot about the Holy Spirit this morning. Good. Because that's what this text is all about. It would be a disservice to the people of God to miss this extremely important point regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. Here it is. You ready? Without the Holy Spirit, there is no worship. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no worship. Yes, there may be preaching. There may be singing. There may be chanting and praying. There are tons of people around the world who are doing that apart from the Holy Spirit. But here's the truth. They can do all of those things, but there will be no power. There will be no power in the preaching. There will be no power in the singing. No power in the giving. No power in the doing. If the Holy Spirit is not there. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. In power. In power. And what establishes the power of the Holy Spirit? It's the power that the Holy Spirit points us to truth. Points us to truth. That's what makes true worship powerful. It's that it's actually grounded in something real and true. Not mysticism, not good feelings, not goosebumps on the back of my neck, but eternal truth. And only the Holy Spirit can lead you there. You may say, well, I felt the prickling on my neck and I felt the hairs on on my arms stand up. I've heard that in constant concerts. I felt that in constant choir singing and orchestras. Heck, I felt it when I just got a slight breeze. The Holy Spirit is more than just an external feeling. It's a leading to truth. And that truth is what drives us to power because we know that the power is actually grounded in something real. For Luke... The Holy Spirit is a spirit who reveals, speaks, guides, and empowers the people of God. Without the Spirit, there's no Pentecost. And the Great Commission falls flat. And the kingdom of God roars to a stop. And the people of God remain unchanged in their sinful nature. Without the Spirit of God, we've got nothing to go on. We're a beautiful vehicle with no gas in it. 
going nowhere. He is the power that drives the truth of Christ forward, the kingdom of Christ forward, the people of God forward. And He leads us into a procession of praise as He daily brings Christ to us and us to Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, this scene would have been nothing but a family reunion. But because He showed up to reveal the glory of the presence of Christ, there's power here. There's praise here. This praise begins in John, pours out through Elizabeth, and will be sung by Mary next week. The Spirit of God brings power into this place. What a glorious reality. The final thread of the Old Covenant with the thread of the New Covenant connecting in this home of Zechariah and the results are explosive. Praise. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to trust God to see and savor Christ and worship in spite of our circumstances. The Holy Spirit's power takes humble sinners and makes them mighty worshipers. Apart from the new birth, apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is no power in worship, no efficacy in worship, no transformation in our worship. It's powerless. And powerless worship is useless worship. It's not worship at all. Brothers and sisters, do not get drunk on the wine of emotional experience, but be filled with the spirit of truth that will powerfully move your heart to the praise of who God is. Do you feel dry? Are you weary? Are you tired of talking so much about your glorious theology, but never experiencing the reality of it? Does your worship feel distracted and hollow? Then that itself might be a gift of the Holy Spirit. Because it is finally when we become disillusioned with our mere talk, our anemic worship, and our weak selves that we finally begin to pray, whatever it takes, Lord, fill me with the Holy Spirit that by your power I might be moved to finally worship you rightly. That I might finally feel you and know you that this anemic worship that I've experienced over and over again, that these glorious truths of theology that I can speak and define and articulate, I want to feel them, Lord. I want to feel what it's like to trust on nothing else but your sovereignty. And pray, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Because that's where the power comes from. The Holy Spirit is the power behind true worship. Secondly, notice the object of true worship. Verse 42 through 43. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The worst, you, the worst mistake you can make in reading this text, and a lot of people have made this mistake, is to think that Elizabeth's praise is directed towards Mary. It's not. It's only directed towards Mary and the realities of who she bears. And the one who has acted upon her. 
She says, the mother of my Lord. Christ is the center of her worship. She is praising Christ. But notice something important. Throughout this whole text, even though Christ is the central object of praise, the text itself reveals that the full object of our praise is the entirety of the Godhead. In verse 41, who's the one who produces the praise? The Holy Spirit. In verse 45, who's the one that has ensured that all of this has come to pass? The faithfulness of the Father. So though Christ is the central object of the worship in this text, the text wants to make clear that the full orb object of worship is the triune Godhead Himself. The reason that Mary showed up to begin with the reason that John left in the womb, the reason that Elizabeth burst out into praise and that Mary will sing right after is because God the Father is faithful, because Christ the Son has come, and because the Holy Spirit's at work. The faithfulness of God the Father is revealed in the person and work of God the Son, which is revealed through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Luke is so deeply Trinitarian. He's so deeply Trinitarian in these praise passages because he wants to say, yes, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Savor Christ. Behold Christ. Jump for joy over Christ. But see Christ as the faithfulness of God and know that you see Him by the power of the Holy Spirit so that your worship is full-orbed it's not just Christ-centric. It's God-centric. It's holistically God-centric, triune-centric, that all of the Godhead gets praised through your beholding of Christ. When you worship Christ, praise the Father who sent Him and praise the Spirit who revealed Him to you. Now, not every praise has to have all three names of the Godhead in it. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm not saying you've got to make sure every single time that you name all three or it didn't work. No. What I'm saying is that all true worship must flow from the acknowledgement that I can only know the one because of the work of the three. The only reason I can behold Christ is because of the work of the other two. The only reason I can know the Father is because of the work of the other two. The only reason I can know the Spirit is because of the work of the other two. I can only know the one because of the work of the three. And that's what we mean by triune worship. Paul so often sprinkles this in. Good example here. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is this triune reality that we live a life of worship through. The reality that I can only behold the one because of all three. The object of true worship is the triune God of heaven. Oh, let us worship the Father who is faithful. Let us worship the Son who loved and gave Himself for us. Let us worship the Spirit who daily empowers us, transforms us, and seals us for all eternity. The triune God of heaven. He is the object of true worship. And there is to be no other. There is to be no other. So what idols are you worshiping today? Get rid of them and worship the triune God of heaven alone. Thirdly, 
Notice the basis of true worship. Verse 45, here the last. And blessed is she who believed there would, that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Like I said earlier, I believe the reason that Elizabeth uses she instead of just you there is because she is throwing herself in there as a picture of what it is that has brought forth the state of blessedness. It is their faith, her and Mary's faith, that God is faithful to fulfill His Word. That God is faithful to fulfill His promises. And their faith in that is now allowing them to reap the fruit of faith. It is in this statement that we see the basis of all their actions and all their worship. It's faith. It's faith. In this statement, we see that it's faith that marks the basis of all true worship. Here's a good takeaway here. True worship flows from a settled certainty that God has and will be faithful to fulfill every promise He's given in His Word. True worship flows from a settled certainty that my God is faithful. He's faithful. Every old covenant promise found its yes and amen in that child growing in Mary's womb. And God is unchanging. So if He was faithful then, He'll be faithful now. And He'll be faithful forever. So I can trust when He says to me, if I confess He is faithful and just to cleanse me and forgive me of unrighteousness. I can trust that He who began a good work in me will bring it unto completion. I can trust that everyone who is saved by Christ will never be lost because He in no ways cast out those who come to Him by faith. And He is the Good Shepherd who will not lose one that the Father has given Him. I can trust that I am a child of God. Adopted into His family through a new birth by the Holy Spirit who serves as a sign and seal of my future inheritance in the Lord. I can be sure of all of this. Why? Because He's faithful. He's faithful to fulfill every promise He's given in His Word. And so I can live a life of worship that pours through my faith in a settled certainty. God will not fail. And if He won't fail, I don't have to live in fear. I can live in worship. I can live in worship because I'm certain that He is faithful. Worship doesn't pour out of your faithfulness. It pours from His faithfulness. I can be sure of everything because He is faithful to His Word. And that unshakable faith in an unshakable God is what produces unshakable worship. It's why I can, you can do with Job and say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because it wasn't about His stuff. His worship wasn't about His circumstances. It wasn't about the experience. It was about His God. And when you know God is faithful and you are certain in it, You'll worship no matter what. The basis of all true worship is faith 
and trust a settled certainty that God is faithful to fulfill every promise. Finally, I want you to notice the marks of true worship. The marks of true worship. Here's the now what. Here's the now what. Here's the take home for us this morning. The illustrations in the user manual for you to behold and follow and say, all right, I'm on the right path here. The first mark is this. True worship is marked by complete surrender. Complete surrender. What does complete surrender look like? Complete surrender is an all-encompassing response to the glory of God. An all-encompassing response. All that I am moving in light of what's been revealed in Him. Look at this. Mary, in spite of the length of her journey, hastily goes 80 to 100 miles to rejoice with her cousin. The babe John, overcome by praise, leaps inside of his mother. Elizabeth, bursting forth in glorious praise, unwilling to hold back any words. Mary, bursting forth in song, not not keeping any of it inside of herself. Every bit of this is a total picture of surrender. A willingness and a response that says, when God speaks, His people move. In other words, surrender isn't passive. It isn't just, I'm sending it up to the Lord. I'm just going to say a prayer. No, it is an all-encompassing action of surrender to the Lord. It's hasty. It responds. It must act. It must move to the will of God, the good news of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. True worship is all in. It's all in. I'm all surrendered to You. There's nothing left to give, Lord. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I count it all lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. It's complete surrender. Whether I am to live and go be with the Lord, that is great for me, Paul says. But if I am to stay, that means work for you. In other words, all that I am is for work for Him. All that I am is for ministry to Him. All that I am is for service to Him. What did Mary refer to herself as? The slave of the Lord. Your handmaiden, your slave. I'll do whatever your word says. That's complete surrender. True worship is all in. There's nothing left to give. It is a full subscription to the army of Christ. Ready to go and do whatever the Lord our General says. True worship is marked by complete surrender. Secondly, true worship is marked by a desire to worship with others. Notice, Mary wants to go be with Elizabeth. And John wants to make sure his mother knows. The Lord's here. And Elizabeth sings. And it's contagious because then Mary sings. And then when after uh, John's born, Zechariah will sing. It's contagious and it's a desire to share that worship with others. Can you worship at home alone? Yes. All the time. But true worship won't want to stay there. It won't want to stay there. 
True worship wants the world to know of our great God. True worship wants to join in and fellowship with other worshipers. Why? Because it's contagious. It's contagious. Worship is contagious. Passion is contagious. Boldness is contagious. My friends, as John Piper says, mission exists because worship doesn't. Why do I want to go and tell the world about Jesus? Because I want them to worship. I want them to know the glories and goodness of God and to feel it and to savor it and to know it like they were created to do. That's why missions exist. That's why evangelism exists. Because I want the world to know and to worship. My friends, if your worship isn't carrying you out of this building... If it's not carrying out of this building into your week, desiring to see it spread to others, then you're not here worshiping. You're just here having an experience. And maybe not even that. If your worship isn't carrying into Monday, then you're not here worshiping. You're just here to check a box. You're just here to get an experience, perhaps to make you feel better about yourself. But if it isn't carrying over into the week, you haven't come here to worship. Because true worship goes and it tells, and it shows true worship. It's the desire to worship with others. Thirdly, true worship is marked by humility and gratitude. Verse 42 and 43, right? I love this statement of her. She says, right, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Above, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Here is a woman who knows her lowly estate. Elizabeth knows I got no business having the Lord come into my home. And in it, she shows us the true picture of what worship is. Worship is the recognition that you and I were dead sinners, at enmity with God, deserving nothing of His grace. And yet, He, in unbelievable grace, amazing grace, overwhelming, abundant grace, has made His presence known to us and He has come and take residence within us. And when the God of glory has come and resided in my heart, the only proper response is utter humility. Why me? And utter thanksgiving. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that You would see fit to make me Your own. Worship is a privilege, not a right. We only wanted to fight for it when we felt like it was a right being taken. But we don't rejoice over it when it's the privilege we've been given by the Almighty God of Heaven. We fight more for it when men try to take it away more than than rejoicing over it when the God of Heaven gave it to you. Worship's not a right. It's a privilege. A glorious, utter, overwhelming privilege of the God of heaven who gave it to you. So when you worship, be marked by humility. Who am I, Lord? And by gratitude, God, you are great and good and gracious and merciful. Thank you for looking at my lowest state and making me your own. That is the heart of worship. Humility and gratitude. And they go hand in hand. Go hand in hand. Finally, true worship is marked by joy. The presence of Christ made John leap for joy. 
joy. You know how Elizabeth can know that it was for joy? The Holy Spirit. That's why she would just, oh, this isn't just a normal kick. I mean, he's probably moving plenty at that time. This was a leap for joy. The king's here. Christ is here. What good news of great joy. Christ has come. Jesus has come. God has come. Christ has come, Christ has saved, Christ has risen, Christ reigns, Christ will return, and by grace Christ has made us His own. Rejoice! Again I say rejoice, church. That's why Paul could say, even though we are sorrowful, we're always rejoicing. Because our joy is rooted in Him who can never be taken, never changed, but is always there. No matter where I go or what the world puts me through as a follower of Christ, there He is with me and there He is with you. Therefore, wherever I go, the presence of the Lord is with me and wherever the presence of the Lord is, there joy should be abundant. As Nehemiah said in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. How do you get through the morrow? The joy of the Lord. How are you going to raise those kids when it's hard? The joy of the Lord. How are you going to endure and fight for your marriage? The joy of the Lord. How are you going to worship throughout the week? The joy of the Lord. How are you going to share the gospel? The joy of the Lord. You don't have a problem telling people things that you're happy about. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Unshakable, unending, unstoppable joy is the product of knowing an unshakable, unending, unstoppable Savior. Joy is a mark of true worship. And joy can come even in the midst of tears. Because even in the midst of tears, I can say, I have a greater hope in Christ. I have a greater meaning in Christ. I have a greater future in Christ. Do you delight in God? My friend, I don't care if you run or leap or sit, shout or be silent. I don't care about any of that. All I care is, do you delight in the Lord? Do you delight in the Lord? Do you thirst for Christ? Do you long to be filled by the Spirit? If so, then your worship will be marked by the deepest joy. Is our God not worthy of such worship and praise? Praise that is completely surrendered. Desiring to share with others. Marked by humility and gratitude and filled with utter joy. Is he not worthy of such praise? That is true worship, brothers and sisters. And may nothing less ever flow from this church. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the truths therein. God, let us be true worshipers. Worshiping in spirit and in truth by the power of the Spirit, God. With you as our sole object. With faith being the basis of all of our faith. Marked by absolute surrender. A desire to share with others. Humility and gratitude and absolute and utter joy. God, I pray this morning if there are those whose hearts have gone cold over the years where worship has become stale and, and just flippant and there just doesn't feel the passion, Lord, I pray that right now there would be a resurgence, that they would be filled by the Spirit 
That they would be able to see and savor Christ again in a renewed manner or perhaps for the first time. And behold Him in all of His glory and the reality that He is here with us this morning. And that they would be moved to worship right where they are. Whether that worship looks like silent reflection. Whether it looks like a a, a laying prostrate at the altar. Whether it looks like a, a, a crying out of tears to Lord fill us once again whether it it looks like standing and singing with every fiber of our being, the glories of Christ and the reality that we come to Him just as we are fully and ready and willing to serve with absolute surrender Him. Whatever that worship looks like, Lord, I just pray that You'll make it real, that You'll make it raw, that You'll make it relational, that it'll be authentic and true, rooted in the truth of what we've seen this morning in Your Word. Oh God, move us to action. Surrender us to You. And let us live in worship all the days of our life, as we will for all eternity, praising you, the Lamb and the Spirit who fills us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.